Greetings, listening audience. We are honored that you have welcomed us in your homes for the Hour of Excellence. The theme is, it's about our children. Children are cheerful, happy, intelligent, lovable, dynamic, respectful, energetic, and nice. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are his reward. Thank you for loving and praying for our children. Please enjoy the following presentation. National Reading Month is celebrated in March. In this month, people, especially children, read a lot more in celebration. The increase in reading during this month has significant benefits. Reading is one of the best habits to develop. It is fun. It strengthens the mental muscles, helps to improve comprehension and analytical abilities, increases imagination, and boosts memory. Today, we might take reading for granted, but it has a very long history, and there was a time when only a few people knew how to read. The first books appeared in Rome and also developed in some Asian countries and the Middle East. Before the printing press was introduced in the 15th century, books were expensive and rare. But as printed books gained popularity, literacy rates began to rise. In 1892, the first book covers appeared and in the 19th century, publishers started printing books with hardbacks. Three National Reading Month activities. One, read a book. So what better way to celebrate than to get out your favorite books to read? Number two, Start a book club. The best way to make your love for reading permanent even after the National Reading Month is over is to start a book club. And last, number three, create awareness. You would be surprised that not everyone knows about this special month. By spreading the word, you're creating awareness and more readers. Five surprising facts about reading. Number one, reading often makes you kinder. Studies have shown that people who read more fictional books are more likely to be kinder to others than people who don't. Number two, reading a book fast will help to strengthen your vision. Number three, it reduces stress. A good book can be a great stress reliever if you allow yourself to get lost in the book. And number four, it improves your vocabulary. Reading good books often will help to improve your vocabulary. And last, 
Consistent reading will help to increase your imagination, which will stimulate your brain to develop new ideas and make you more creative. Now let's listen to Jack Hartman, The Month of March. Tell me what month comes after February. Come from, come from, come from. 
there's no limit where we can go. Can go, can go together, me and you, and you, and you. There's so much that we can do, can do, can do. So grateful for what I have, I have, I have. Any day that we can see, can see, can see. Not worried at all, at all, at all. There's no one like you and me, like you, like me. I'm smart, that's right. Watch me read the words that I see on sight. I know, I'm oh so bright. Watch me read the silent words. I'm smart. Come on. 
Pop, pop on words. Pop, pop up when you read in newspapers, books, and magazines. Pop, pop up when you read in newspapers, books, and magazines. Pop, pop, pop.
March is also Women's History Month. There are many young women making history. Today, meet Maya Penn, a 23-year-old phenom, award-winning founder and CEO of eco-fashion brand Maya's Ideas, keynote speaker, sustainability consultant, three-time TED speaker, artist, global activist, animator, filmmaker, social entrepreneur, Coder and Simon and Shuster author. Maya has received a commendation from President Barack Obama for outstanding achievement in environmental stewardship. Maya was awarded the 2016 Coretta Scott King Award as well as honored at the SCLC Drum Major for Justice Awards. She has been chosen by Oprah Winfrey as her youngest Super Soul 100 entrepreneur, change maker, and thought leader. She has been one of the youngest leaders in sustainability and environmental justice for 12 years, starting at the age of eight years old. Maya also founded a nonprofit organization called Maya's Ideas for the Planet and started an ongoing project to give back to women and girls in Haiti, Senegal, Somalia, and more. Maya's book, You Got This, is being used in schools around the world as curriculum to teach youth social good-driven entrepreneurship, creativity, and giving back. Now let's listen to I Can Do Anything. excited to read Bad Habit Rabbit by Carly Valentine. 
Did you ever wonder how an Easter Bunny is chosen to hold that legendary title? Well, it all starts out at Bunny Hospital where promising bunnies are handpicked by the Easter Bunny pickers. How do they pick the promising candidates, you ask? They have a checklist of things they look for with each rabbit that is born. But that is a story for another time. Today I am going to focus on a special little rabbit named Fluffy Bum. Fluffy Bum was hand selected as a baby bunny by the Easter Bunny Pickers as a choice Easter Bunny candidate. His name described him perfectly. All the other little bunnies were very jealous of his perfect fluffy bum. Over time, Fluffy Bum grew up and was one day ready to head to the official Easter Bunny Academy. His first year was off to a great start. He started out with perfect grades in many subjects. Egg Hiding 101, Hop Away and Hide, Quiet on Delivery, and Basket Decorating. He even got extra points for the Appear Fluffy and Cute class, which he mastered. However, there was one little problem. It all started one regretful evening when Fluffy Bum got a taste for the chocolate he was putting in the different eggs. Mmm. Milk chocolate, white chocolate cream, even some rare eggs with the delightful gooey candy yolks in the center. So delicious. He couldn't get enough of it. He was continuously caught putting candies in Easter eggs that had little fluffy bum bites taken out of them. <laughs> According to the EBP, this wasn't just a little problem. It was actually a very serious problem. Fluffy Bum wouldn't be able to advance to the final grade in the official Easter Bunny Academy until he had gotten rid of this terrible habit. The other bunnies took notice that he was struggling with this habit and started to poke fun at him. Very mean of them, I know, but they were still very jealous of his perfectly fluffy bum. Some of them would point and laugh and tease him. This really hurt fluffy bum's feelings. He needed to find a solution to end his terrible habit once and for all. He decided he needed to visit his great, great grand bunny, Floppy Ears, <laughs> to get some advice. Floppy Ears was the oldest and wisest bunny in the town and also happened to be the most famous Easter bunny the Academy had ever had. So off he hopped, hop, hop, hop. 
in hopes of solving his bunny woes. Fluffy Bum arrived at his great-great-grand-bunny's house and hopped over to him. Floppy Ears welcomed Fluffy Bum onto his lap. What is wrong, little Fluff Bum? Tears started to well up in Fluffy Bum's eyes. I have a terrible habit and I'm not sure what to do. I can't stop tasting the chocolates before I put them in the children's Easter eggs. I won't ever be able to become an official Easter bunny like you unless I can defeat this terrible habit of mine. Well, Fluffy Bomb, this is a problem for sure, but I will help you overcome this issue. I am glad you recognized you had a problem and came to me to ask for help. You see, no bunny is automatically just good at everything. We all have different things we struggle with, Fluff Bomb, and it sounds like your biggest struggle is temptation. When I was a little bunny, I had a very hard time passing my hop away in high class. You see, my most famous trait, my perfectly fluffy ears, had created a perfectly annoying problem. Whenever I would try to quietly leave, my floppy ears would get caught up and stuck somewhere. I tripped over them a time or two and tumbled more times than I could count. Really, great-great-grand bunny? Fluffy Bum asked. I had no idea that you struggled with anything. You were the best Easter bunny our town had ever seen. Of course I did, little Fluff Bum. Nobody is perfect, and everyone has something that they struggle with. The important thing is that I found a solution to my problem. How did you fix it, Grand Bunny? Well, I tried many different solutions, but the one that finally worked was to tie my flop ears back with carrot stems. So they were out of the way and I couldn't get tripped up by them. Oh, wow! Can you help me beat my habit too? Of course I can. Let's think about how to solve this little problem you have. Wow, the chocolate's so hard to resist. The chocolate smells so wonderful. I catch a whiff of them blowing in the breeze and my nose starts sniffing and my whiskers start twitching and it's all downhill from there. I see. That is quite the challenge. Uh, to solve my problem, I tied my ears up and back with carrot stems. Can you think of something similar you could do to keep yourself from smelling the yummy chocolates? Hmm. Fluffy Bum pondered. I've got it. What if I plug my nose? That is a great idea. 
I think I know just a place to get a nose plug or two. Off they hopped to a house that was close by with a clothesline drying fresh laundry in the breeze. Nearby in the fresh grass sat a little basket of extra clothespins. Fluffy Bum hopped over in delight and plugged his nose with one of the clothespins to test it out. This will work perfectly, he said. Wait, said his grand bunny. You have figured out one step in fighting your habit, but I have another piece of advice for you. When you struggle with temptation and want something really bad, it helps to replace the bad habit with a good one. Why do you want to be an official Easter bunny? Think hard about this, Floppy Ears said. I want to be an Easter bunny so I can bring a smile to all the kids' faces. Fluffy Bum replied, That's great. It's a wonderful feeling to make others happy, and that's what I love too. So how can we replace your bad habit with a good one? Hmm. They both thought for a bit. I know, Grand Bunny. Instead of having a bite of chocolate, I can focus on putting an extra little gift inside their egg, like a sticker or a fun toy. That's it. You have discovered another step to help you beat your habit. I think there's just one more step to come up with to help you combat your problem and set yourself up for Easter Bunny success. What else do I need to do? It would be a good idea to fill your tummy up with something delicious before you deliver the Easter eggs. Can you think of another food you really like that would help you be full ahead of time so you aren't as tempted by the chocolate grand, grand bunny asked? I know I love carrots, said Fluffy Bum. Yes. Yes, that is perfect. So before filling the eggs and delivering them, come to my garden and gobble up as many carrots as you can so your belly is full and you won't be so tempted. Okay, I can do that for sure, Fluffy Bunny replied, licking his little bunny lips as he thought about the yummy carrots. Okay, you are all set now. You have figured out a plan. I know you can do this. Tomorrow before heading to the academy, make sure to complete all three of these steps. I know you will pass your final exam and become an even better Isabani than I was. Thank you so much for your help, said Fluffy Bum while hugging his great-great-grandbunny. He hopped off towards his house to write all the steps down so he would be sure to remember them. The next day, Fluffy Bum took out the clothespin and pinched his nose with it. He grabbed his bag of stickers and toys and traveled to the carrot patch where he munched and munched and munched. When his tummy was satisfied, he bounded off to school. 
feeling proud and ready to pass his final exam. During his test, the EBP was blown away by Fluffy Bum's accomplishments. Not only was he able to complete each task, but he had also started a new tradition of adding little toys and stickers to the children's eggs. He passed his test and made Easter Bunny history with his new additions to the eggs. Fluffy Bum and Floppy Ears had never been more proud. But just to be safe, Make sure to leave some carrots out for him the night before Easter to help ensure that temptation is gone and your chocolates arrive uneaten and in one place. Oh, and in one piece. <laughs> Thank you for listening. That was Bad Habit Rabbit by Carly Valentine. Thank you again for listening. Joseph Ballone, the first black composer. Some call him the Black Mozart, which is an offensive term. Many historians argue that Mozart plagiarized some of his work.
Ballone was a legendary musician, composer, and swordsman in the 18th century. Despite facing racial discrimination throughout his life, he rose to fame as one of the most skilled musicians and fencers of his time. Let's dive into his fascinating life. Joseph Ballone was born in 1745 in Guadalupe. His mother was a slave of African descent and his father was a plantation owner who recognized Joseph as his son. At the age of seven, he was sent to France to receive a classical education, including music lessons. Joseph quickly showed exceptional musical talent, and by the age of 13, he was already a skilled violinist and composer. Joseph's musical talents caught the attention of the French aristocrats, and he was invited to perform at private concerts in their homes. He became a favorite of Marie Antoinette, and the Duke of Orleans, who became his patron. Despite his success in the music industry, Joseph also had a passion for fencing. He trained with some of the best fencers in France and quickly became a skilled swordsman. He eventually became the captain of the King's Guard of the French army which was a highly prestigious position. However, Joseph faced discrimination due to his race. He was often referred to as the Black Mozart and was sometimes excluded from public performances due to his skin color. Despite this, he continued to succeed in both music and fencing and became a symbol of black excellence in 18th century France. In addition to his music and fencing skills, Joseph was also a vocal advocate for the abolition of slavery. He used his platform to speak out against the inhumane treatment of slaves in the French colonies and call for an end of the slave trade. Unfortunately, Joseph's legacy was largely forgotten after his death in 1799. It was not until the 20th century that his contributions to music and society were rediscovered. Today, he is celebrated as a pioneer of classical music and a symbol of black excellence. Let's listen to the extraordinary life of a musical genius, Joseph Ballon. The history of African people is so vast that one hardly knows where to begin. This is not just the history of nations and kingdoms and communities, but of outstanding individuals as well. One of the most extraordinary of these individuals lived in 18th century Europe and he draws our attention like a powerful magnet. His name is Joseph Bologna, known to history as Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges.
The sun rises on Christmas Day, 1745, in the French colony of Guadeloupe in the West Indies. A baby, Joseph, is born to Georges Bologna de Saint-Georges, a wealthy, married, white plantation owner, and Nanon, an enslaved Senegalese woman. Joseph's skin, a color between honey and nutmeg, glistened in the morning sun that poured in through the window. Born at another time, in another place, his birth might not have been so celebrated. But Joseph's entry into the world was hailed by his mom and dad alike. The midwife predicted that he would grow up to achieve great things. I have a daughter, and now I have a son. I will use my money, position, power, whatever it takes to lay the world at his feet. Young Joseph lived a privileged life on the plantation. He did not have to toil in the fields as the other children of enslaved parents were required to do. Parents and children alike were awakened daily at 5 a.m. to line up for presentation before starting their work. By 7 a.m., with roll call ended and all toiling in the fields, Nanon had arranged for breakfast to be prepared and the table set. Joseph would take his place next to his father. Tell me, my son, how are your studies going? What new ideas are floating around in that head of yours? Tell me about your violin lesson yesterday. Was your maestro happy with your progress? As the son of the plantation owner, Joseph had ample time to play. He explored the island with his dad on Sundays, delivering food to the slave quarters. Growing up near the vibrant port city of Basse-Terre, the mountainous part of the island, Joseph often visited the open markets and cafes while shopping with his mother. He watched the ships unloading their cargo of sugar, coffee, cocoa, and human cargo of newly enslaved labor from Africa. At the time, Basse-Terre and its surrounding area was a melting pot in which sounds, harmonies, and melodies mingled to form an astonishing and improbable musical stew. Global citizens and global music poured into the port daily. Joseph became enchanted with the sounds of music from France, including classical music brought over on royal vessels. He had both time and opportunity to explore the world around him. Hearing music from the African continent, local church hymns, and popular music that poured out of the local taverns expanded his curiosity and broadened his mind. Georges, who had gone to Guadeloupe to make his fortune, returned to Paris a wealthy man, along with his wife, Elisabeth Francois, daughter, Elizabeth Benedictine, his son, Joseph, who by then was approximately 10 years old, and Joseph's mother, Nanon. The trip was a life-changing event for both Joseph and his mother, Nanon, for by setting just one foot on French soil, Nanon became a freed citizen. By a parliamentary decree in 1571, slaves were emancipated upon disembarkation. Nanon often reminded Joseph it was said at your birth that you would grow up to do great things. But because of on your path, my son, your father is rich and powerful. But not everybody thinks the way he does. Work hard, stay humble, and in time, 
you will change hearts and minds. Once in France, Joseph was excited to see people of color working at regular professions as coachmen and delivery persons alongside whites. His dad had high hopes for his countrymen disregarding his son's color and respecting him for his knowledge and skills. But the long-held beliefs in the superiority of whites over people from the African continent provided many, many hurdles. Joseph's mother Nanon was given a modest home to live in. Joseph resided with his father and visited Nanon frequently, especially when he had good news to share. He'd play his violin for her, show off dance steps that he'd learned, regale her with stories of time spent at sporting events with new friends and of having sumptuous meals at their homes. At the age of 13, Joseph entered the fencing academy of Nicolas Texier de la Beuzière. The academy was an elite boarding school for the sons of the aristocracy. Mornings at the academy consisted of classes in mathematics, history, foreign languages, music, drawing, and dance. Afternoons were devoted to the most important subject, fencing. It was the premier sport of the aristocracy and would give Joseph an easy entrance into French society. He trained alongside the son of La Beuzière and became a cherished friend of the family. Young Joseph was a tireless hard worker and to his father's delight, the top student in every class. He hunted, danced, ice skated and was a strong swimmer. It was rumored that he could swim across the river sand with one arm tied behind his back. By 17, he had developed incredible speed. Having reached the height of 5 foot 6, tall for those days, he was slim, well-built, extremely strong and had great agility. His height gave him the advantage of towering over his opponents to exploit their weaknesses. His speed allowed him to recover quickly and return to the attack with the speed of lightning. Joseph was a modern-day Renaissance man, mastering skills and growing in esteem daily. Joseph often won duels against men twice his age, and in 1765, a fencer named Alexandre Picard insulted Joseph and challenged him to a duel. At first, Joseph refused. But his father promised him a new carriage if he fought and won. Joseph fought and quickly emerged the victor. Defeated, Picard retaliated by calling him a mulatto, an offensive name used to demean and disrespect people of mixed race. Picard was neither a hero nor a gentleman, just a sore loser. Joseph suffered his first defeat the following year at the hands of the famed Italian fencer Giuseppe Gianfaldoni. After the match, Gianfaldoni offered nothing but praise for Joseph's skills, stating that he would soon be the best fencer on the European continent. His prediction would come true. Despite his skill with the foil, the laws regarding the children of mixed race were harsh. Since 1729, a code noir, or black code, was established to restrict the rights of slaves as well as free people of color. Under this code, Joseph was unable to inherit property or his father's noble title. One story tells of Joseph being made an officer in the court of King Louis XVI. He was henceforth known as Le Chevalier. It was the lowest title a nobleman could hold. 
His father then added the name of the family plantation, Saint-Georges, and tacked on a variation of the family name, Bologne. Georges was certain that the name Joseph Bologne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, would help open doors for his son, paving the way for success. By the time he was 19, he was already an accomplished athlete and a recognized public figure. Everyone called him Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges and started to compete for his company. Many Parisians began inviting him to balls and soirees while back at school, he was still taunted for his color, called names such as half-caste, badly bleached. No matter how skilled he was at the fine arts, he was harassed on a daily basis. Bright and talented whites could move up, blend in and slip into high society, but before Joseph was able to charm and impress, many in high society were first struck by his color. On his 21st birthday, he received a beautiful and valuable violin made by Niccolò Amati, the famous violin maker and teacher of Antonio Stradivari, whose name would become synonymous with excellence in string instruments, recognized worldwide. At this point, Joseph was devoted to music and this gift helped him progress rapidly. Composers such as Karl Stamitz began to dedicate compositions to Joseph, it has been said that when performing, he would take his violin from the most expressive and passionate singing to the highest technical skills, dazzling all with his virtuosity. His playing surged with the joie de vivre, the joy of life, which the French flocked to the concert halls to experience. In addition to the violin, he mastered the harpsichord as well. In 1769, Saint-Georges was hired as first violinist of Le Concert des Amateurs, directed by François-Joseph Gossec. The group was made up of the finest musicians from the region. There's something that bow technique and fencing have in common, and Joseph had an amazing skill for both. In 1773, when Gossec moved on to a different conducting post, Saint-Georges became the group's director. From the conductor's podium, he could play all his favorite composers, such as Bach, Corelli, Vivaldi, Telemann, Handel, and Haydn. And as the maestro, he could shape this music written for ensemble as well. This was one of the most important jobs in the musical world of Paris. He was only 24 when the baton was passed to him, and he was paid very well for his new position as maestro. He took joy in conducting the talented musicians who played violins, cellos, double basses, flutes, oboes, and bassoons. The orchestra grew in reputation during his leadership. Joseph became one of the most sought-after guests among the elite. His fame was even known abroad. American President John Adams predicted that Joseph would become the most celebrated man in Europe. And for a while, he was. The famous swordsman Henry Angelo claimed that Saint-Georges' mother Nanon was one of the most beautiful women and that Saint-Georges combined in his person his mother's grace and good looks and his father's vigor and assurance. He became a favorite of the ladies at the fancy balls and parties. Sadly, belief that Africans were genetically inferior to Europeans was widespread. Interracial marriages were forbidden and he would never marry. I continued to rack up success after success. 
but my status in French society was still a conflicted one. Not everyone was happy to see me, a man of color, beautifully dressed and wearing a powdered wig. But many complimented me on my appearance and my top-tier talent. I have proven myself successful in so many arenas. Surely now I have made it to the top. Thus far, I had been celebrated as a fencer, as a conductor, and now my public debut as a violin soloist performing my two violin concertos earned me critical acclaim as a composer. My first string quartets were written in 1772. They were among the first pieces of this type written in France and would become the first of my compositions to survive the ravages of history. Over the next decade and a half, music continued to be the center of my life. I commissioned Joseph Haydn to compose six symphonies, which I conducted. I composed string quartets, concertos, symphonies, and operas, which were performed at the Paris Palais Royal. I had money, fame, important friends in high places, and social standing. My fame continued to grow. And in 1774, I received an invitation to visit the royal palace at Versailles to perform for His Majesty King Louis XVI and Her Majesty Queen Marie Antoinette. It was the first time that a man of color would enter the palace to perform for royalty. And I was excited to be performing for the king and queen. I gained the respect of many of the royal entourage and eventually became Marie Antoinette's music teacher. We often played string quartets together, but I was fired from that job because rumors claimed that we'd become close. Too close. Always looking for new musical styles to explore and conquer, I became fascinated by the stage and two years later stopped composing instrumental music in favor of opera. Around that same time, the Paris Opera needed a new director and I was convinced by my supporters to apply for the position. King Louis thought it was a great idea as well. Unfortunately, two of the singers and a dancer petitioned the Queen, stating, My honor and the delicacy of my conscience will not permit me ever to be subjected to the orders of a mulatto. To avoid embarrassing the royal couple, I withdrew my name and the post remained unfilled. This outcome was damaging to my spirit, my musical future, as well as the Paris Opera and the patrons alike. We all lost out. I had become familiar with a few arias from Mozart's operas and had visions of introducing the Parisian audience to one of his grand works. Mozart and I actually lived in the same place for a time. Count Sickigan was a supporter of the arts and we both lived at his chateau for several months. We appeared on the same concert programs regularly, and there was a bit more than friendly rivalry between us. I suspected that he may have borrowed a melody or two here and there. Listen for yourselves. Here is a passage from my violin concerto, Opus 7, that I composed in 1777. Now, listen to a section of Mozart's Kirchhoff 364, composed the following year. What do you think? Oh well, it happens. I'll just remind you that I was born 11 years before Mozart, and leave it at that. 
While I tried to recover from the disappointing turn with the opera, the winds of dissent stirred outside my door. The Age of Enlightenment, a cultural movement, was starting in Europe and spreading to many parts of the world. The philosophy encouraged people to think for themselves, to work together to create a great society, and asserted that even those with little money or power should have the same rights as the rich and powerful. This got my attention. Before 1789, France was ruled by nobles and the Catholic Church. There were three basic classes or estates. The first estate was the clergy. The second estate, the nobles. And the third estate, the commoners. Most of France belonged to the third estate and there was little opportunity for people to move up to a higher estate. The rapid spread of the popular and timely ideas of this Age of Enlightenment encouraged many folk in the Third Estate to stand up to fight for their rightful place. And why not? They had nothing to lose. The call, liberty, equality, fraternity, inspired people to take up arms to help bring about change. It became a very dangerous time for my friends King Louis and dear Marie Antoinette. I continued to suffer many dark days as the storms of revolution were brewing. For a big part of my life I had been friends with the aristocracy. I owed a lot of my prosperity to the monarchy. Choosing sides was a huge challenge. My loyalties were divided. On one hand, I felt a deep connection to the goals of the revolution that started in 1789. I had great love and respect for my mother. Our shared African heritage made me want to stand up to fight for the goals of liberty, equality, and fraternity. 1792, I joined the fight. The Parliament established an army of 800 foot soldiers and 200 mounted personnel, consisting mostly of black soldiers, called the Légion Franche de Cavalerie des Américains et du Midi. The group was later referred to as Légion Saint-Georges. As Colonel Saint-Georges, I chose my good friend and protégé Alexandre Dumas as Lieutenant Colonel. He was the son of a French aristocrat and an enslaved African woman as well. I educated him in the skills of swordsmanship and considered myself lucky to have him on board. He later had a son also named Alexandre Dumas who won fame as the author of The Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, and The Man in the Iron Mask. My leadership was celebrated and yet it was next to impossible to get the basic equipment we needed for success. Half my regiment was without horses, barely enough ammunition to go around, and most still missing home and mother. With many inexperienced recruits still on foot, it took us three days to reach the training camp in Long. In February, the Minister of War ordered me to take my regiment to the front. I wrote back in protest. Short of horses, equipment, and officers, I cannot lead my men to be slaughtered without a chance to teach them their left foot from their right. In spite of a continuing shortage of officers and equipment, my regiment was finally able to prove themselves in the Netherlands campaign. The French Revolution descended into a paranoid mess. My friends Louis and dear, dear Marie were executed. 
Like many others who had previously been heroes of the revolution, I could be a good revolutionary one day, and the next day, I was the enemy of the people. I had continued to participate in concerts and fencing events when I was free, but I was condemned by critics for being involved in what they called non-revolutionary activities. My legion had fought well and defeated the Austrian army at Lille. I had given all of myself to the cause. The blood of friends had watered the tree of liberty, and yet shortly after our success, I was arrested along with ten of my officers and taken away. My officers were released two weeks later, but I remained in prison, falling to false charges of corruption and misusing public funds. I was dismissed, and without a trial, imprisoned for eighteen months. Still, I considered myself to be lucky, as daily I saw many of my fellow prisoners sent to the guillotine, also without the benefit of a trial. And I was lucky to have something to help sustain me during the long hours of each day and night. My music. Finally, the Committee of Public Safety ruled that no evidence existed to prove my guilt, and in 1794 ordered me released from prison. Sadly, my freedom did not happen in time to see my beloved mother Nanon, who died just before my release. In spite of the overwhelming support of my men and junior officers, I was not allowed to resume command. In 1797, I was given the opportunity to direct the Circle of Harmony, a newly established concert organization in Paris. In April, the journal Mercury posted the following review. The concerts which have been held under the direction of the famous Saint-Georges have left nothing to be desired for the choice of works or the superiority of performance. I survived the French Revolution by the skin of my teeth, and towards the end of my life, I once again became devoted to my violin and played like never before. At the end, I was taken in and cared for by Nicolas Duhamel, an old friend who had served under me during the war. I was poor and suffered from a series of stomach ailments and a bladder infection. Much of my music was lost or destroyed during the revolution, and what survived was quickly forgotten. Oh, they did publish a few commemorative editions of my work when I died, but it was a bad time to be a composer of color. Any traces of my music were removed from orchestra repertoires and essentially from the history books. Neither omission from the world's major music history textbooks nor a lack of musicians programming my music, nor apathy from publishing houses and record labels have erased me completely. After two centuries of neglect caused by systemic racism, as long as my music survives, I survive. Ah, but listen, I think that the music says it all.
Thank you for listening to the Hour of Excellence. Have a great day.